Would you pray with me, please? Father God, we, we are so glad, so profoundly glad to be in your presence. We are delighted with the grace you have shown us that we can be here today together. We ask you, come. Come and guide us. Come and lead us by your word read and preached. Come and guide us that we may know and understand and delight in your presence. Oh, Father, you are marvelous. You are glorious. You are amazing. And we give you thanks and praise and honor. And we just ask you to come now, Lord. Direct your word. Direct your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, I pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. We continue uh, with um, our study and our look at the uh, Nicene Creed, the statement of faith of the church. And um, I want to encourage you to have those papers that we have in your bulletins ready uh, so that you can take notes, or if you have another way of taking notes, please do that. So here we go. What we have done for the last uh, two weeks is we have been looking at our faith in the Nicene Creed as we declare it. And uh, we have already looked at two sections of the Nicene Creed. The first one is the one that deals with the Father. Because, by the way, uh, you all need to know that all of the creeds are Trinitarian. All of them uh, say we believe in God the Father, and we believe in God the Son, and we believe in, uh, in the Holy Spirit whether it's the Apostles' Creed, whether it's the Nicene Creed, whether it's the Athanasian Creed, they are all going to be Trinitarian. And the first section that, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago is the one that relates uh, to the Father. And we said that we believe in one God. Okay, and that's, that's extremely important. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and of all that is, that is visible and invisible. And then last week we dealt with the second portion, uh, the portion on Jesus Christ, which is the longest in the creed. I divided it into two parts for a purpose. The first portion, if you remember, has to do with his divinity. I spent a lot of time sharing with you and talking with you about the church's necessity to clarify the divinity of Jesus Christ. And I shared with you about some of the heresies that were going on, especially Arius uh, in northern Africa, which spread all over the Christian world, and the church was forced to have to clarify what the scriptures actually teach about Jesus Christ. And we, we read in the second portion of, of the creed, we read that we believe in one Lord, 
Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And, and I explained all of these words, especially the, the word begotten, um, which indicates that he proceeds from the Father, not created from the Father like all other creation, not born in the same way that you and I are born, but he proceeds eternally from the Father. And I stated, or we stated with clarity, with complete clarity, and I hope even this image will give you that clarity, but uh, we declare with clarity that we believe in one God, and only one God, and there is no other like him. He is unique. He is like no other God. He is the only God, and we believe in that God. He is one. God is one in essence. He is one in who he is in his core being. He is one in all of his divine attributes, one in divine substance, that divine substance being divinity. God is one and only one. But we also know in Scripture, in the revelation of who Jesus Christ is, and in the revelation of the Holy Spirit, that this God that is one in essence is also three in persons. Three in persons distinct from one another. So we should not ever confuse the persons or divide the unity. In other words, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. When Jesus prays to the Father, he's not praying to himself. When God sends the Spirit, it's not the Father that is being sent. It is the Spirit of God that is being sent. And yet all three of them are one God in essence. To make it a little bit human with its errors is a saying that God's DNA, his DNA that only he has, God's DNA is shared by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But they are one. One God, not three gods. One God that share the same essence, the same substance, which is divinity. And I think that image kind of gives you an idea that God is without form. God doesn't have limits. God is beyond uh, our limits, like we have our limits, our, our bodies, our, fle our flesh, our arms, our head, and that's it. I cannot be part of your body. I can only be part of mine. God is limitless, and in that limitless, 
He is one. And within that oneness is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sharing the same essence, the same substance of what makes God, God. I hope I'm being as clear as possible. This morning, we're going to deal with the second part of that portion that is a reference to Jesus Christ on the creed. The first part is dealing with his divinity. This is the second part that we're going to deal with today. We believe that through Jesus Christ, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead in his kingdom will have no end. Here I want you to notice and realize, if you have never noticed it in the creeds, in all of the creeds, that the first portion that we dealt with as to who Jesus is, is his divinity. We dealt with his divinity. I explained to you completely last week what it meant to be God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten and not made of the same being and essence as the Father. I explained that to you. Today we're dealing more with the area that has to do with his humanity. With his humanity. And this is an important concept that I want you all to understand. What is called theologically the two natures of Christ. The two natures of Christ are affirmed in the creed. He is both divine, God in essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he's also completely, total, perfectly human. He is the God-man. Jesus has two natures, but those natures are not separate and independent. Those natures are together in the one person of Jesus Christ. The two natures of Christ, divine and human, perfectly divine with the Father and perfectly human with us. At times I've heard people speak about Jesus doing the miracles. When Jesus does the miracles, his divine part is working. But when Jesus dies on the cross, or Jesus cries, or Jesus hungers, or Jesus uh, teaches, that's his human side. That is heretical. You cannot divide the two natures of Christ. The natures of Christ are together in one individual. And he who dies is God who dies, man who dies. He who hungers is God who hungers and man who hungers. He who cries is God who cries and and man who cries. In Jesus, both natures are together. God 
and man. It is true that in becoming man, some of the attributes of God became limited, such as his ability of being everywhere. His ability of being everywhere. He did not limit in power. He did not limit in glory. He did not limit in omniscience. But he did limit in that he couldn't be everywhere like God, we believe, is everywhere. Yes, the humanity of Jesus, even in becoming man, it was sacrificial for the God of eternity to limit himself in becoming a man. But in God, both natures are always together. Never, ever separate them or allow anyone to separate them. Both natures are together in Jesus Christ. What we say in the Nicene Creed and the portion that we are dealing with and with each of the portions, because they begin the same way, the first thing that we say is that we believe. And it's so easy to go by that and, and pass that. But to say that we believe is to say, here I stand. This is my faith. Anything else I've believed in the past, it's gone. I erase it from my mind, from my heart, and from my spirit. I believe in this faith. Here I stand at the exclusion of all other faiths and of all other beliefs and of all other religions. This is the faith of the church. Here I stand. We believe. That's what we mean when we say we believe. We stand here in this faith. And outside of this faith, it's not Christianity. This is the faith of the Christian church. Any other faith, any other religion, any other people, even if they call themselves Christians, they are not if they ignore deny any portion of the creed, of the creed of the church, of the Nicene Creed, which is an expansion of the Apostles' Creed. So we say we believe. We believe. And when we say we believe, we are doing so consciously, rationally, in faith, with faith, and through faith that this is my stand. And nothing else is part of my faith system. We believe. And the first part that we are dealing with this morning, it says that through Jesus all things were made. That through Jesus all things were made. In other words, Jesus is co-creator with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And nothing that ever has been created, visible or invisible, living or inanimate, nothing that ever has been created, has been created without the full Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together. So that even at Genesis, 
chapter 1, where we hear God say, let us create man, let us create man in our image. Those two words, us and our image, implies that there is more than one in the process of creation. Let us create in our image implies a plural involved in creation. All living things, anything that exists at any point, anything that exists has its origin, its beginning, and its existence dependent on God. God is the one that by his will and his will alone created all things. And Jesus was part of that creation. And we see it, for example, we see it in the scriptures, in the gospel of John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. All things, everything that exists was made through Jesus Christ. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. When we go to Ephesians, in Ephesians, St. Paul writes this about God the Father and the Son. He says that God created all things through Jesus Christ. And then in Colossians, a mighty passage, it says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. That's important. Jesus is the image of the invisible. The invisible God has taken shape and become visible in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and all things, and in him all things consist. It is clear. In the Old Testament, we know that God is creator. We know it all through the Old Testament. In fact, at the beginning of the creed, that's one of the statements we make. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. But here we're also stating that all things that have ever been created were created through Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, and all things belong to Jesus Christ. So one of the things we say in the creed is that uh, he created all things. The, second, the, the next thing I want you to look at, and this is so important, because we say that for us and for our salvation. And sometimes we can say that so quickly, and we need to stop a moment. For us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. 
for us and for our salvation, he became incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. For us and for our salvation, he was made man. It wasn't without purpose. It was for us and for our salvation. The incarnation of the Son of God, God becoming man, was a necessity so that God dies for us. God, Jesus Christ, that is, was in eternity and in glory with the Father, abandons all that glory to become a servant and be born a man, a human, so that a human can die for humanity. An angel has no relationship with us. An angel does not understand what it means to live in the flesh. An angel cannot be a proper substitute for mankind, nor do animals. Animals were killed in their blood because God established it that way. That way the blood of the, of the lambs, the blood of the animals became a way of redeeming us from sin. But it was inadequate, and it wasn't enough, and it had to be repeated over and over and over again because one animal was not enough to take away the sins of the world. And so the Father sent the one and only eternal begotten Son to become man, to suffer like a man, to suffer like a human, to cry like a human, to thirst like a human, to understand humanity in its fullness. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus, for our sake and for our salvation, becomes one of us, completely human, completely and perfectly human. Here I want to teach you a couple of other things. I told you last week when we were dealing with the divinity of Jesus about the Arian heresy. Arius and his belief that Jesus was not God. There were a couple of other, well, there were several more heresies circulating around in, in, the, in the beginnings of the church, first century, second century. There was one particular heresy that the church had to deal with. It was a heresy called docetism. Docetism comes from the word, the Greek word dokeo. And dokeo means to appear, to appear to be, to appear to be. And so there was this heresy circulating around, even infecting, infecting the Christian church. And this heresy, docetism, implied that Jesus never fully became man. Because matter was considered evil. Therefore, Jesus could not have become human, could not have taken on flesh 
In fact, they claim that Jesus was never born, that Jesus appeared one day on a mountain, and that when Jesus walked, Jesus walked like hovering over the air, so his feet never actually touched the ground. And there were people infecting the faith with those kinds of belief, trying to protect the divinity of Jesus, they were destroying the humanity of Jesus. There was also another heresy, which was called Ebionism, or Ebionism. And Ebionism, and Gnosticism, and Ebionism, I think, was similar to Gnosticism. And one of the things the Gnostics were saying about Jesus is that the one who died on the cross wasn't Jesus. That there had been a switch and God somehow had confused everybody there so that the one that got crucified wasn't Jesus. The one that got crucified was Simon of Cyrene. And Jesus just went somewhere and after three days showed up again like nothing had happened. And if it wasn't Simon of Cyrene, other even attempted to say that it may have been Judas, who somehow got switched and everybody thought it was Jesus and crucified Jesus. Another side of that Ebionism or, or Gnosticism was something like this. The Christ in heaven, the Christ comes upon this human named Jesus. And the Christ comes upon the human Jesus and possesses him so that all of the miracles, all of the teachings, all of the great things that Jesus did was because the spirit of the Christ had come upon this man. Jesus possessed him and now he was doing all of these things. But just before the cross, the Christ left and the one that got crucified was the poor man Jesus who never asked to be possessed by anything. The church had to deal with this evil, wrong, confusing doctrines and teachings that were being taught. And therefore, the Nicene Creed clarifies that Jesus became fully, completely human. Of the Holy Spirit, God, of the man, of mankind, Mary. And the two come together in a way that is inexplicable. Because the, trend, the, the incarnation, you cannot explain it in its fullness as to what happened. Only that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she was found pregnant. And so the one to be born of Mary was both God and man. The God-man with the two natures, divine and human. Completely human. The necessity of the birth of Jesus as a man was so that a man would die for all of mankind. One who identified himself. One who was fully man. In fact, this is the way St. Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, 
but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a, of a servant, of a slave, of a bondservant, of a human, and coming in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Son sacrifices the glories of heaven. Sacrifices being at the right hand of His Father in heaven. With all authority. With all worship. And takes on the form of a servant like you and I. Limited in many ways. Able to suffer. Able to bleed. Able to feel pain able to cry, able to hunger, able to thirst, able to experience everything and still not give in to temptation for he was without sin in every way. Jesus becomes man. We believe that. We stand in that. The next portion tells us which also begins very powerfully for me. If this, if this uh, section that I just talked about says for us and for our salvation, this one begins for our sake. For our sake, not for His sake, not for the Father's sake, not for the Spirit's sake, but for our sake He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried for our sake to pay for our sins to take on our penalty to take on our guilt for our sake he went to the cross and God allows himself to be killed and allows himself to shed his human blood for in dying for us all of our sins are paid for so that when you and I appear in the presence of God, we are guiltless because those guilty things in us have been paid for. They have been taken over by Jesus. The burden of sin is placed upon him and he dies for us in our place so that you and I don't have to pay that price. For our sake, he died on a cross. For our sake, he died. For our sake, he was buried. But of course, that's not the end of the story. The next thing we affirm and declare that we believe is that he, on the third day, rose again as he had promised in the scriptures, as all of the Old Testament and the New Testament had prophesied, especially the Old Testament, 
According to scripture, he rose on the third day and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Please notice that death could not conquer Jesus. Nor death, nor the devil, nor sin, nor any power could conquer Jesus. Nor the grave. On the third day he rose in accordance with all that he had foretold that he was going to do. He rose and then he ascended to heaven. And our Lord Jesus Christ is now seated at the right hand of the power of God. At the right hand with all authority, with all glory, and with all praise. Our Lord Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand, not idle. We are told in Hebrews that he is there interceding for you and for me. When we pray and we say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray, Father. That I, in my mind, I see Jesus turning to the Father and saying, that one is one of mine. He's asking you in my name, Father, let's do what he says. Let's do what she says. We find him interceding. We find him as the mediator between God and us. Even in heaven. We find him praying for us. We, pray, we find him caring for us. We find him hearing our prayers and giving them to the Father. And interceding. And that's what he's doing in the heavens right now. As he sits with the authority of heaven in the right hand of the Father. He's there as our intercessor. We believe. We believe we have an intercessor in heaven. We believe. And then we say that we believe that he will come again in glory. To judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is returning. This time not to die. That's done. Jesus is coming back to reign supremely and establish once and for all the kingdom of God. And to judge evil as evil and to judge righteous as righteous and to give the reward to the saints. Jesus is returning. Jesus is coming back to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. And to reign supremely. We believe this. This is where we stand. And nothing else will be sufficient. To remove us from that faith. We believe in Jesus Christ. Both God and both man. Who for our sake. For our sake. Died for us. For our sake. Jesus Christ. Died for you. And for me. And we live in expectation. And we live in glory. And we live in, in, in praise. And we live waiting. And we live ready to welcome him. And we live this life. Living it through Jesus Christ. 
We live this life to his glory until he returns. And when he returns, we will be with him forever and ever into eternity. Because he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And he has a place for us in the Father's house. We believe. This is the statement of faith of the church. This is where we stand. We have a Lord and a God. Next week, I'm going to deal with the Holy Spirit and the universality of the church and the resurrection of the dead and so on. But I want you to understand the fullness of what we affirm in this part of the creed. Have faith. Be strong in your faith. Be unmovable in your faith. This I believe. And here I stand.